Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Welcome back to episode 17 of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you for joining, as always. Going to be a slightly different episode today. There's no shout-out. I wanted the extra time for the interview. The interview today is with Joey Talmadge, who some of you may know by his musical alter ego, Hoodie Time. His music is great. You heard a little bit of, of it on the way in. You'll hear some on the way out. Please go check him out on Spotify or wherever you get your music. We recorded this back in uh, middle of May, that would have been. At the time, the biggest thing going on, or the thing that was being covered the most by the news, let's put it that way, was the coronavirus. So I'm going to save my normal talking about the interview for the end because I want to open with a more important topic. This is being recorded the week of June 1st as the country is burning. We have ignored this problem for too long. It's hard to find the right words to even talk about this. I lead an incredibly privileged life. I grew up in a Jewish household that I never wanted for anything. And that privilege went beyond that to being able, given the opportunity to learn from and interact from many different communities. I've talked about this before. You know, I was so lucky <laughs> to... I went to a private school where most people were what you expect from a private school. But I was so lucky. I, I don't know why I had this privilege, but I did, to early on befriend those who were different. And since then, my closest friends have been different. And I'm not saying that in the sense of, oh, my best friends are... Oh, fuck that. I'm saying that in the sense of, look how incredibly lucky I was to learn about other communities and other points of view and diversity in every meaning of that word at a young age. 
I count that as a blessing, and I consider that blessing all the time. And that meant the good and the bad. I had enough experiences to know or to learn that I know nothing. I had the curtain pulled back for me. I got the glimpse, you know, the one that said, experience this for a minute and then leave here knowing that you know nothing. Did it suck being pulled over on multiple occasions and searched by cops in white neighborhoods for having, for committing the crime of driving with black people in the car? Yeah, it sucked. But what sucks a billion times more is having that fear every time you get in the car. Did it suck being accused of stealing at malls and thrown out of malls on multiple occasions because the group I was with was predominantly black? Yeah, it sucked. But it sucks a billion times more to fear that every time you go in public. White people need to recognize their privilege. And when we don't, we need to listen. If somebody says, this is your privilege, yeah, it's okay to get upset. It is. It is okay to get upset and then get the fuck over it. And then get the fuck over it and listen. No one's saying you can't be upset. No one's saying you shouldn't feel your emotions. Those emotions are real. They're valid. But then get over it. That is the important piece. Feel your emotions and then get over it and say, I'm ready to listen. I am sure that I'm going to lose some listeners with this. That's fine. Maybe I won't. Maybe 100% of my listenership is like, yeah, right on. I doubt it. If (laughs) I'm recording this the day after our president (sighs) had the military tear gas hundreds if not thousands of peaceful protesters had the military physically abuse journalists who were recording them doing this. The, the videos are out there. They're all over Twitter. They're all over social media as a whole. So that he could take a photo op in front of a church If it fooled you, I'm, I'm sorry for you. If you weren't outraged, if you saw that militaristic, if you, if you saw those actions, those Gestapo actions, those dictator actions, and went right on, then get the fuck out. This podcast isn't for you. 
not this episode. This podcast isn't for you. I don't want you as a fan. I don't. I feel so horribly sad for you that you've made it this far in your life with that incorrect. I, I, I don't even have the words for, for that. We all need to work to make this change. And it's not just voting. It's not. It's just not. Go back and listen to my episode with Tessa Schwann, the activist, and listen to how our ignored communities feel about this election. Listen to how they're already mourning 2020's election for once again not getting a choice. You can get mad at me if you want. That's fine. This idea that we have that voting is going to fix this is a white person's idea. Yes, it will. In, in a perfect society, voting would fix this. But our system is not set up for them. Our system is set up for us. There have been more slaveholding presidents, more white nationalist presidents, than our one black president. And yet we think that this system is the answer. No, we have to change this system. I'm going to finish this intro with a moment of silence for all those who've been lost. And not just Mr. Floyd or Mr. Aubrey, or I could go on and on and on. I mean, look, when, again, when I'm recording this, there are two, in the last three days, there have been two more unarmed black people murdered by cops. One of them, by the way, this Louisville one, the second one, it was during a protest. The cops turned off their cameras and murdered a man. It's so out there that the, I don't remember if it's the, I think it was the um, mayor of Louisville fired the police chief. And nothing is being done about it. Right. They're not hiding this one. This isn't like the other one you got to search for. I mean, it's not even it's only on social media. It was a trans person who was murdered in Tallahassee. I believe it was. This one in Louisville, it's being talked about and nothing is being done. The police chief got fired and everyone's like, oh, good victory. No, 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 no. They murdered a man. They turned off their cameras and murdered a man. Unarmed. Protesters have, you know, they're mad at them for throwing water bottles. The cops have military-style weapons, military-style body armor. And they're using the throwing of, of water bottles as justification to attack unarmed protesters. I'm going to end this with this moment of silence. And then we'll go into the ads and into the interview. Stick around afterwards. We'll talk. I'll talk about the, the interview with Joey uh, and, you know, your good egg and, and your card. I'm angry. I'm sad. I am... 
a lot of emotions. I love you. If you're still listening and you're like seething, go do your own research or reach out to me. You can find me at my website, www.jshiffman.com. Find me on social media. Uh, normally, I'm not nearly as active on Twitter, but you know, the last week, I haven't been saying a lot. I've just been retweeting. I think a lot of these messages need to be out there. Find me on LinkedIn or Facebook at jshiffman or on Instagram at the next shiftman. Black Lives Matter. Huge shout out to my podcast sponsor, Mountain Made CBD. Mountain Made is changing the CBD game by offering a line of high-dose CBD tablets at an affordable price. Their products are THC-free and third-party tested for accuracy, cleanliness, and potency. Their products, which now ship nationwide, include Build for CBD saturation, Boost for precision titration, and Recover for rest and rehab. With nine years' experience in hemp and fitness, Mountain Maid's founders are focused on creating a quality CBD product to help those with activated lifestyles. Check out www.mountainmade.life to find out more about how their product can help you crush your life. And you know I'm all about that. Remember, their products ship nationwide. So go check out the website today and follow them on social media at Mountain Maid. And also listen to episode seven with Mountain Maid founder, Mike Passion. All right, back to the episode. So we'll start with this. You and I go real far back. Uh, besides Gabe Kalubi, who gave a shout out a couple episodes ago, you and I, you are definitely the longest person that will be on this podcast so far and I think that's going to be really interesting because uh, as you and I were chatting about when we were talking about doing this you know you and I were kind of going through our shit right around the same time which is really interesting and not only the the time frame overlap but we also then overlapped at that time same room dude Yeah. yeah so tell tell that story real quick for our listeners all right so I, man, this is wild. I don't know if we've even in detail relived this. And I know that it's, you know, we're, we're, this is a podcast about recovery and stuff. I'll try to be delicate with the whole fact that it's a war story at the end of the day. <laughs> so we were all hanging out. I ended up not going to Arizona State. I got into the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. I was going to do creative writing. But I didn't go there because I wanted to go follow a girl to Cincinnati. That didn't work out. And then, you know, I just... I dealt with it in certain ways. And, and I also uh, failed out for a little while. Yeah. Right there with you. And met this dude um, through you, funny enough. And uh, my band at the time, Space Cake, you know, we, we played house parties. We played regular venues. But we just had a good time. I, I mean, it, I'd still look back at those days. I think it was fun. But this dude asked us to play a house party. And we ended up saying, yeah, hell yeah. He was, you know 
wasn't going to pay us anything but you know free drugs and free drinking all night and we're 19 years old we're like this is awesome we're we're like the main event for this thing huge house party and it got thick back in those days like those huge we can't uh, we can't like overstate that it was like too big huge like multiple houses yeah yeah um and so i don't know if you and i jay have even gone into detail about what happened to me that night i will say full out i don't like i remember that night but i don't i don't remember that night so we set up and we started playing the party and the party got sick. And at one point I was, I was definitely drinking. I was definitely smoking and I ate some mushrooms. I know that at the time I was starting to get really, really into my own head at that time in life. And I started picking up clonopins. And so that was really taking me out. And I was just like faded. And, you know, this show was like my escape. I was going to be fucking Jim Morrison for the night, you know? <laughs> I was going to be Jimi Hendrix for the night because fuck everything that's happening in my life. This is cool. I feel important. And at one point I got up on top of an amplifier and I was playing a guitar solo and dude handed me a blunt and well, not handed me like put it in my mouth because I'm playing guitar and just put it in my mouth and lit it. And I kept playing and smoking the blunt and then switching sides to blow the air out. And just like, I was like, I'm going to do this. And you know, I, homies take it away from me at one point but that's the last I remember of the party and um and the next the, the next thing I know it's like 4 p.m the next day I am in Madeira which for our listeners is like what 20 miles 15 miles 15 it's, 20 it's miles north of solid 15 to 20 minute drive without traffic away from where on the going. highway yeah. right so it's 4 p.m. the next day. We're in Madeira, and I'm in my car with my shirt off and all my music gear in the back. Well, half my music gear in the back. And the guitarist is sitting next to me. And and we're at we're in the driveway at my grandma's house in Madeira. And I'm like, what happened last night? Good gracious. Maybe I have some issues right now. And um, and he was like, oh bro how you doing I was like not good I don't remember anything what happened last night and he was like oh I sprinkled something in that blunt so we could give it to you I was like oh my god what have you done to me and I punched him in the face and we started not hanging out anymore but I I then I mean to to lead into the whole how I started my recovery type thing that night I took a grip of acid and wanted to just completely leave planet earth for a while and i came down the next morning and randomly got a phone call from my dad who i hadn't seen in months hadn't heard from in months because i was either living at one of y'all houses or in my nissan and he was like dude i miss you you want to just come hang out and have dinner tonight and i was like fuck that sounds dope but i'm coming down maybe not but i was like fuck it so i drove over and um we had dinner and I didn't even, I mean, we didn't have dinner. My mom served up the plates and I just started crying at the dinner table and I told them everything. And within a week later, I was in the wilderness of Utah learning how to make fire with two sticks. And after that, it was, you know, 12 months in inpatient at a really cool, but 
strange place in Arizona <laughs> and and the rest is history. That was 10 years ago now, 11, 11 years ago now. So here's how we, we bring this sort of into the story that most of my listeners know about about me. I was actually on a, on a podcast that just dropped where we talked about, there's a saying in recovery that's like, I wouldn't trade my, my worst day now for my best day in, in, when I was using. And how that's a bunch of bullshit, right? Because we had a lot of fun. It just got out of control. You know I mean? Like, and that's the problem with, with using with people like us that have, that have issues with, with, you know, addiction and my like greatest times, but also my, my like, okay, things are really starting to spiral times are this period. So this is how this all kind of melds together. Looking back, it was an awesome time. You know, these kind of nights were four or five times a week. Like that's what we were doing. And it was amazing, but it was also horrible looking back. No wonder my life spiraled out of control. That's the thing too. And like, man, when you're, when you're going at it and, you, and I mean, at that point in time, you're not thinking that you have a problem either. It's not looking, looking back on it now. It's like, like, oh, there were some issues going on in hindsight. I should have been worried about myself during that party, but feelings are feelings, experiences are experiences. And it's, you know, I, I, I think it's, like like you said, some things that you hear in, in the rooms or, you know, in recovery in general can be bullshit. I, one of the things I think is bullshit is don't tell your, don't tell war stories or, you know, don't hype them up. You know, man, it's all right. We had great times. And I think that if you don't have those times, you're not going to appreciate the fact that you can still have them on a normal level later in your life. And if you don't relive those moments, sometimes maybe you lose sight of, who you could still become it's that's still that's still you it's you 11 years ago but it's you yeah and and you make a really great point with the don't tell war stories and that's one that was like really bored into like when we were going through our first recovery but isn't as much thankfully anymore because we're starting to move away The, the don't tell war stories comes from the just say no sort of drug approach where it's like, if we don't talk about how much fun they can be, kids won't experiment, which is a bunch of bullshit. And, you know, this idea that if we try to pretend that, oh, every time we were fucked up was horrible, we won't want to go back and use again. Well, that's bullshit. I mean, and it's also allowing a cop out. If, if your recovery is so fragile that even remembering a good time would cause a, a, a setback, then your recovery is too fragile. And we need to do some yeah. more work to help you there. Exactly. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, And also, I mean, it also shouldn't be surprising that, you know, you and I both ended up in recovery. And not only that, another uh, young woman whose name I won't mention, who was at that party, not long after this, when I wake up in an inpatient center, I come to after an overdose. And like two days later, she walks in and she looks at me and goes, what are you doing here? I'm like, what are you, look, you know, doing here? And the last time we had seen each other was that party. Wow. Yeah. So like that party, it, it, I'm sure we weren't the only ones. You know what I mean? Like there were a lot of people coming together that night that were totally. doing a lot that they shouldn't have been doing. And, and so it shouldn't, shouldn't be that surprising. But, you, but this is all, you and I had known each other for a pretty good amount of time at this point. Because we first met at, I wanted, at Seven Hills. At, at, at Seven Hills. And we would have met. You went to Lot Speech, didn't you? I did. Right. So then we would have met when you were in fifth grade and I was in third grade, but we started to become friends because I became friends with, I think, Gavin Tabor first yes. and you through Gavin when I was in sixth grade and you guys were in right. eighth grade. 
Yeah, and then we kind of lost touch. We got back in touch when you were when we were both in in Clifton hanging yeah. out. You were you were doing the Space Cake thing, which by the way was a great band. I mean, it, you know, you're, <laughs> it you're was fun, short. You guys, you guys, uh, that CD you put out was pretty damn good. Thank you. And it shouldn't be a surprise. It, well, I guess I'd say it this way: it's not a surprise to me or anyone else that that was a big Space Cake fan that you are starting to have a bunch of success as Hoodie Time. Because, you know, you were making great, very different music with Space Cake that it, it's not it's not surprising. You were already on that path towards towards making really good music. Cheers, bro. Thanks. I, um, that, mean, that means a lot because Space Cake was something special, man. It was it, it was it was super different. I think I've always prided myself on the fact that at the end of the day, at least nothing else in the market sounds like what I make. But like we were just saying. You know, we spent a solid year. I did very little other than party, and you were a big part of that scene. I mean, the, yeah. the Clifton party scene was everything we could have wanted if that's what you're looking for. You know, yeah. you, you referenced Project X, which was kind of a period piece almost, and you couldn't do that kind of thing anymore, but we, that was lived experience for us. Oh, absolutely. They would shut down Wheeler Street that whole day just because the cops said, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Right. And, yeah. I, and uh, I remember vividly the, the best night, one of the best nights of my life still to this day was actually during that period at your house with um, some of our closest nuclear friends. <laughs> and, and it wasn't a party night. It was just us. And we were watching the states roll in as Barack Obama became our president. And as yeah. soon as they called, I think it was actually Ohio that was the last one they called to put him over the mark at 271. Um, I remember taking the bongs in the streets and it wasn't just us. All of Victor street was in the street. People were hooting and hollering, ripping bongs and drinking beers and pouring out in the street. And, um, even though it is definitely ingrained in those times of the cat, the, the catalyst times to, to my downfall, my worst period, like you said, you wouldn't trade the, was it, you wouldn't trade the best day in recovery, you know? I, I wouldn't trade any day for any day because that day still exists. And I love that. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the night Obama, you know, one was, that was sort of the, uh, the highest peak of that period yeah. for all of us. And you Absolutely. Know, that, what was so beautiful about our, our, our sort of group of friends, but not only that, you know, the house that at that point we're all living together, like 11 of us are in this house. Anyone, people like you who aren't living with us are there almost every day. Yeah. You know, it is a very diverse group. And so that night, putting aside the fact that almost every single person on that house is struggling with substances and, you know, mental health issues, that night, none of that shit mattered. And it was just mm -hmm. all of us being able to celebrate this thing that, you know, the yeah. first black president, this is a big deal. This is a momentous occasion and a truly yeah. a barrier breaking down. And I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. We were in the streets celebrating like you you know you wouldn't believe if you hadn't lived through this period there were great moments yeah and and you know as you as you said we both ended up you know it's not surprising we both ended up sort of heading towards rehab after this very oh, different sure. experiences yeah so i don't i don't want to make you talk about anything you don't want to but if you would want to talk about your experience that would be fantastic Oh, dude. Yeah, I'm, I'm an open book. Um, it kind of started when I was in middle school, actually, when we were first becoming friends. Um, 
I had a hard time with some of the kids that came over from the other school. Uh, Jay and I went to a school that um, two primary schools merge into a junior high situation. Um, and, you know, the, the quintessential story of kids from the other side of the track, you know. And um, so some of the kids just really gave me a hard time when they came and joined our school. And, and I had never dealt with that before. I was always just a kid who was a chameleon and could fit into any group and didn't have a didn't have a friend group, just belonged to everyone's friend group, you know. And um, it wasn't the case anymore. And I just my, my mom got a little bit um, worried about about my sadness all the time because I wasn't having a good time in school anymore. And I started seeing um, some therapists and, you know, back in the day, that was, that was kind of when the huge pharmaceutical ramp up of the ADD craze happened and, you know, put your kid on Ritalin, put your kid on Adderall. And so they did that. And I think that started messing with me pretty hard. And, um, by the time I was, you know, a freshman, sophomore in high school, I had seen probably, I, I'm not even lying, 10 or 12 different shrinks because I didn't want to go. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to go, but I was forced to go to these psychiatrists because it was the only way that they would give me the medicine that my parents wanted me on. And let me just say before I continue, I don't, I don't blame my parents at all. It's probably really hard to be a, a parent. And I'm going to have to be a parent someday, hopefully, and that's going to be hard. But um, I, I wish it wouldn't happen. Not mad at it. I digress. Um, so anyway, you know, I, I, I see all these therapists. I'm on, I, they, they switch me drug to drug to drug. And um, then I start experimenting with some, some drugs in high school. And I figured the best way to pay for these drugs is to just sell my Adderall. I don't want to take it anyway. So I started selling Adderall in high school, which in hindsight was the stupidest thing I could have done. I could have gone to jail for decades. I mean, that's, some, you, that's terrible stuff. And, um, and I would use the money to, to buy legal drugs because I didn't know where I could get my hands on anything else other, other than weed. Um, and so, you know, they had the, the smoke shops had the salvia and they had the, these, these legal highs or whatever. Can we, can we stop for a second and say how crazy it is? Because I used to do salvia, too. That shit was illegal to be sold in a store. It was like the precursor to bath salts. Bro, I got it at the, the smoke shop in Clifton on 100%. Vine Street or on Jefferson. Everyone knows that's where you get everything you need. Yeah. And I would get the 100X. It came anywhere from 5X to 100X, and that's the um, potency of it. Yeah. And when you smoke that 100X, you leave Earth, dude. 100%. I had some of the worst trips I've ever had on 100X Salvia. It's yeah. short, it's short, but it's yeah. some of the most intense trips you'll ever have. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, man. I, oh, man. It's like, it's like the dark, dark, dark side of DMT. If 100%. it were a yin-yang, that's the dark hole, and DMT is the light hole, yeah. bro. Oh, my God. And so I, I, started, I started just frying my brain on some stuff, and at that point, I was having my, I lost my grandfather. It impacted my mother a lot. And I didn't understand at the time why she, why she was the way she was. And way later in life, um, my dad told me some things that I didn't know. And, and mom needed some help too, um, getting over that huge impact on her life. And so as a kid though, I didn't understand why sometimes she's short with me or couldn't be there for me or like was, you know, acting the way she, I didn't want her to act. Um, and part of that was just sending me to more therapists and putting me now on SSRIs. 
they had thought that maybe I was dual diagnosed, uh, dual diagnosis, or you know, dealing with something like bipolar. Um, but then going back and forth with more therapists and more different SSRIs, um, it's not it's not good for your brain. And at a at a certain point, I I just stopped taking all the drugs and I started taking my own drugs, and that kind of brings us to where we started hanging out in, in college because then it wasn't just Joey smokes weed and kind of sometimes drinks the salvia. It's Joey has an issue with some Klonopin and, and Joey's, you know, when he's tripping, he's not tripping to have a positive experience and learn something and grow. He's tripping to leave the world. Yeah. So, you know, in that respect, our stories are very similar. My, my you know, thing, I was really, I was addicted to all my medication, but clonopin was the one that I was really abusing the most after, and it all started from ADHD medication. And, you know, our stories are not, are not unique in that way. I, I quote this a lot, but when, when, you know, you're only a couple of years younger than me, when I was, uh, the year I turned one in 1987, uh, there was something like 300,000 kids that were prescribed um, uh, something for ADHD. By the time I'm 11, when I started taking it, it was almost 2 million. So our generation was used as like sort of lab rats. And, and as you yeah. correctly pointed out, it was to just get your kid on, on Riddle and get them on Adderall, whatever the case is. And they had the schools advocating it, bro. I mean, they had the school counselors and guidance counselors, and they, they, they had a whole school nurse and drug program. Yeah. And, and it's not surprising, you know, from what we now know about brain development, that so many people with our story end up going through struggles with, with addiction is, you know, yeah. if you experiment at a young age, you are X times more likely to develop a, a substance use disorder. We weren't experimenting. We were being taught to experiment. And so it's exactly. not surprising. So, you know, we're, we're going through this at the same time. Your uh, sort of pivot happens before mine. And luckily for you, doesn't happen with a suicide attempt. Yeah. We just, I just, I decided that I just, I needed help. I needed to get, I needed to get somewhere where I could not party and where I could not escape the issues that were going on in my head that I didn't want to face. And, you know, recovery is a funny thing because when you get into it, you don't have an issue. All you think you need is to not be doing the drugs. That ain't it, bro. So then when you keep going through recovery, you start to realize almost, I mean, every year, even though I'm not in the rooms anymore or, or technically like living a life of recovery per se anymore, um, I'm still recovered from those behaviors and those specific crutches that I couldn't let go of. Um, and, and even though I'm not in the rooms, every year I kind of look back and I realize I'm, I'm bigger and better than I was last year. And, and this is what I've learned. And I continue to learn things. And the experiences that we have, even the bad ones like we were talking about, um, lead to all, all that growth. So I had to go through quite a, a, a phase to get out of myself and to get out of my routines of dealing with myself. Um, it started with three months in the wilderness in Utah, which I would never trade for the world. It was awesome. And when the apocalypse comes, call me because I have got the primitive skills. Um, we can rebuild. So um, it started with that. Um, I thought it was just going to be that. I thought I was going to come home after three months. That was not the case. Um, I had divulged in my acid come down when you are, of course, very perceptive to emotion and openness and truth. Um, I had divulged literally everything so it wasn't three months for young joseph 
um, I ended up going to 12 months of uh, at, a, at a place called Gatehouse Academy in Wickenburg, Arizona. Right? They put it in Wickenburg because there ain't shit for miles, so you're not getting away. Mm-hmm. Um, started out at a ranch there for three months and then at what they called main campus in the, in the main town of Wickenburg for nine months. Um, I learned the big book. I was in the rooms eight times a week. Um, and I, I worked almost the entire time on a horse ranch, six days a week, where five days a week, we would train the horses, clean the horses, feed the horses, and take care of all the tack and stable stuff. And um, on the Saturdays, we would get up at six in the morning, we would light up our Marlboro Reds, and we would ride these horses bareback miles into the desert with our cast iron pans. We would have cowboy breakfast once a week. So it was those new experiences and crazy things that no one gets to live through, kind of like, you know, some of the darker times and fun times that we live through. We often forget that a lot of people, I mean, most people don't live through those kinds of things that we live through. So now I'm finding new, I'm always, that's, that's, that's who I am. I need adventure and I need new stuff. And so now I'm finding that, but I'm not getting completely loaded off of seven substances in a night, you know? And even though it's a place where I'm not allowed to leave, um, I'm meeting people who I still keep in touch with now 10 years later. And I'm meeting people who I eventually will have lost 10 years later. Um, and, you know, I did about four or five months at a halfway house afterwards before I decided it was time to come back and finish college and get the music thing going again. Um, and, I stayed like completely stone cold sober probably until the age of maybe 23, 24. And um, I was having some really, really bad anxiety issues. And now I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm, I don't see therapists anymore. I haven't taken a pharmaceutical in, you know, five years, um, completely cold turkey off of anything, uh, you know, given from a doctor or by my own prescription. Uh, but I started having this, this real bad anxiety um, in university and it was bad to the point where every morning I woke up, um, if there was something to vomit, I would vomit. And if there wasn't, I would dry heave. And it was almost like dude, these, these really intense terror panic attacks every morning before I go to school. And, um, and that's when I knew that, it, that my problem wasn't drugs, my solution was drugs for the longest time. My problems are very, very deep. Um, and that's when I started going to doctors. I went to three or four doctors. I got every test in the book, man. I got tested for cancers and for, I mean, they shot blue liquid through my blood and take, took pictures of that. I don't know what they do, but they said, look, we're not finding anything. We think you're just suffering from extreme anxiety and there are some things that you need to work out. And um, I talked to my doctor and I said, well, what's gonna fix it? And he was like, um, well, listen, I mean, it's getting to that point where states are starting to legalize everything. And have you thought about that? That's the last, cause I mean, any, anything they've given me in any test, this is a year and a half now with this type of anxiety, nothing worked. And I'm about 23 maybe at this point. And, he was like, well, I mean, you know, do you think that that was ever an issue? And I was like, no, I, you know, I, I've, I've always stood by the, the stance that it's from the earth and it's of the greatest worth and that's okay. Um, and so somewhat reluctantly, um, 
I, I went to, I just, I went to what I, I told myself was going to be my last meeting, um, at the proud rooster in Clifton. Yeah. And, um, and I said, Hey, this is going on in my life. And, um, in the morning tomorrow, I'm just, I'm going to have a puff and see if it does anything. And, uh, I hope, you know, that I can still come back from time to time and catch up with you guys and we can, you know, keep in touch outside the rooms. And that's how I left it. And we still keep in touch outside the rooms, which is great. But I woke up that next morning and, and I had some and my anxiety completely, it was gone within literally 30 seconds. I didn't have to throw up. I went and I aced an exam that day. And um, ever since, it's just been, you know, uh, weed when I need it. And, um, and as far as my inside self, um, I just have been at most times, <laughs> at most times, not all times, vigilant about letting the people who love me and care about me know exactly what's going on in my head. Not always the best at it, but that's my line of defense now. Um, I haven't had really a morning episode in almost five or six years now since that happened. And um, I haven't touched anything else that I used to have those nasty, nasty issues with. And um, I think that every year, I learn a little bit more about who I am. And with that, I am a little bit more comfortable with who I am. Um, I don't know if you know, Jay, but I'm adopted. And um, when I was 26, 27, I was living in Los Angeles. I was maybe only in LA for a year or so. And some of my biological relatives started reaching out to me on Facebook. I didn't know how to deal with it. and um, and it, it really hit me hard because one of them, the first thing they ever did was ask me for money. Oh. And one of them, um, my biological half brother is just a saint and a gem and, and we keep in touch from time to time. And he, he came at me with some heartfelt, you know, I, I just want to make sure that before anything happens, I make, I, I talked to, to my brother once and I, you know, so so we keep in touch from time to time. And it's, it, was, it was people's different approaches that kind of took me this way and that way with the whole situation. It's hard enough, you know, being 26 and hearing from your blood for the first time in your life. But um, when people are coming at it in very different angles it, and, and, and all at once, man, it throws you for a loop. And I remember that when I was going through, when I was going through that, I didn't want to reach towards any drugs. Old me would have. You know, 19, 20-year-old Joey definitely would have. Give me some K-pins. Give me some acid. I'll, I'll just leave the, the world for a while. But all I wanted was my friends. And my two best friends came over, and um, my roommates and, and girl were there. And everyone just sat on the couch with me and just let me cry. And then I told them everything that happened and everything that people said, and I don't really remember the rest of the night because we smoked a few blunts and played Mario Kart after that very emotional hangout. But um, that's when I realized that the best medicine is human connection. It was never these hard drugs that, was, that I was into that completely destroyed me and, um, and it led me to completely endless black holes. It was, it was people. I needed connection and I needed what was going on inside my head to be understood and to be heard from someone else because even at the even at the end of the day if i am if i'm not 
in in complete support of myself, at least I know that there are people who completely support me. And through experiences like that, and um, you know, a crazy life experiences like moving to New Zealand and just whatever life throws at you, I learned I learned something new. But it's always um, the, the the common denominator is always that friendship and human connection. I think. I've learned is is the apex, the keystone of that pyramid of human needs. The hierarchy starts with complete human connection. I think that's more important than water, food, shelter any day. And um, I think that that is the biggest, the biggest savior in my recovery is that I have people. And that's, man, people fucking help, man. <laughs> complete uh, human connection and, you know, hi, Mario Kart. Those are the, those are the, 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 the two... The two needs on Maslow's, you know, hierarchy. Absolutely. I truly believe that, man. <laughs> so before we continue, give a shout out where people can find you and what you want people to, to go look at. Right. Cool. Right. Uh, so, I mean, we talked about a little bit of music. Uh, my current project, I go by Hoodie Time. That's H-O-O-D-Y-T-I-M-E. Um, and I'm all, I'm all over. You can find me. Just Google Hoodie Time. Um, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's just at hoodie time and if you want to find me on spotify apple google what i mean anything wherever you get your music you'll find old hoodie sitting there ready for a listen you will find hoodie time and that rolls directly into so you rocketed up these charts right i put out four songs in 2018 and they all charted on itunes beatport and some russian sites <laughs> as well um the Russians love the Russians love the techno and the and the house stuff that I do, you know. <laughs> but how do you go from from so you're you're fresh in recovery, you moved to LA to charting in New Zealand? Like, oh, yeah, I, there needs to be some glue, I guess, to these. A hundred percent, you're right, missing yeah. a bunch of glue in there. <laughs> All right, let's put some glue in there. Um, <laughs> so basically, LA is just struggle town, bro. Um, fuck, LA the best and the worst. And I moved out there because um, I was in a group, a hip hop group for a while, my last few years in Cincinnati called Flohio. And we were starting to get pretty good at what we were doing. Um, you know, we had a few small East Coast and Midwest tours and whatnot and signed to this label in Dublin, which never worked out. You know, we were going to do a European tour, but you know, things happen, you know, Anyway, so I moved to LA to go solo and to start hoodie time. And um, I worked a dead end job at an outdoor retail store. And um, I worked 40 hours a week. I'd come home, get some taco truck, make some music, go to bed. That was, that was my life. Sometimes cry and smoke blunts and play Mario Kart. So um, that, was, that was the deal. And um, I wasn't playing any shows at all. I, I, I started Hoodie Time maybe the end of 2015, and my first show wasn't until my farewell show to go to New Zealand for my first tour, not to move there, but to go there for my first tour in January of 2017. So I spent a year, year and a half just, just making a couple EPs and making singles and collaborating and, and working my ass off to do press releases and make sure that the music got heard before I spent time and energy on touring. Um, touring is where we make all our money as an artist, but it wasn't about money back then. I, I had, you know, I had a job that paid for all the recording and paid for all my bills. Um, 
but I wanted to make sure that I had something that was off the ground before I made an appearance anywhere and before I really, really started it. Build a catalog and then just smash it. So I realized that um, between SoundCloud and Spotify, most of my streams outside the US were coming from the Gold Coast of Australia and in New Zealand. And um, Liat, my girlfriend, um, her father is of New Zealand descent. And um, we figured, hey, why don't we kill two birds with one stone? Let's have an epic two week vacation, but let's book six to eight shows along the way and start racking up some more listens in New Zealand. Um, you know, there's already some family connection there. Why not? So um, about nine, nine months out, I started, you know, contacting the radio stations over there. Some of them were already playing my stuff, which was dope. Um, and I set up se seven shows and we toured. Um, well, we, you know, we played a show in Hollywood first and then we went to New Zealand for two weeks and played seven shows, had some awesome off days. And we, we just fell in love with the place. I mean, Liat had been there 20 times, 25 times, you know, for her whole life. We're 30 now, and she's, um, she's been going her whole life. But I, I truly fell in love with the place, and I thought, I've always been a man of my word. I've always said that if the government gets too ridiculous and I'm un unable to ethically support them with my tax dollars, that I would go to Canada. Well, fuck Canada. I'm going to... Not really. I'm sorry. I like you Canadians. Canadians are good. Um, Tim Hortons all day. But but why not go to New Zealand? So I got a visa. I booked a 22 date tour and came over here and did the damn thing. And there's been three tours since and music festivals and uh, a number one hip hop record and the number three hip hop record and some more top 10 hip hop records. It's been good, dude. Um, I just, I just ended like a nine month hiatus um, off of making new music. I took a year off to kind of recharge. I only played like five or six shows in the last year that I've taken off. Um, but I got 12 songs done during this whole quarantine thing. Um, I've learned that I can do that. So if I'm ever lazy again, someone should just, slap me so i have one more big question then a couple of rapid fire ones that end every interview um yeah. you work in an industry that is not only not conducive to good mental health it fuels the opposite right i mean oh, you know, yeah. you're working in a industry that plays up it would be really hard to keep a level head for most people if they were like oh shit like almost twenty thousand people listen to me every month so how do you stay grounded? How do you uh, protect your mental health in this industry? Um, oh man, that's a good one. Oh, that's deep. I, cause sometimes I, most times, bro, I don't think about it, but sometimes I do catch myself thinking about it. Um, we're on track to hit a million streams on Spotify. Like I think on Monday, probably. If Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That'll be a big milestone. I've, I've never hit a million on a single platform yet. So that's good. Um, <laughs> But yeah, sometimes I do see those numbers. And um, at one point I was getting super excited because around between New Year's and maybe last month, um, I was clocking around 28, 20, 28,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. And, you know, on the dashboard, you can see where they're from and, and how they listen. You can see everything about them. And um, all they can see about you is what you, what you give the internet to show them. And hoodie time is not Joey Talmadge, you know? So 
that I think is the weirdest thing about it is that people see me and they hear my art. And even though I've created this persona and this brand, and that's the point of it, they're, they're not seeing the actual me. They may be hearing snippets from my life through my lyrics. And that is one of the things that keeps me grounded is people actually resonate with the lyrics. I think that I would feel a lot less comfortable with it if I didn't get the messages from the people that I do. Um, I have a song called Abandon. It's about my adoption. And I've had countless people reach out to me and say that that song saved their life. They says that, you know, they say it helped me accept myself as an adopted kid. It helped me give up my child when I thought I couldn't. Like I've gotten some wild, crazy stories through that song and, um, and, and through other works, but that song in particular, the messages I get from it make all of the weirdness of being a zoo animal okay. <laughs> and um, I am, I don't think that I have come to terms with the fact that um, it's quite possible that it could get bigger and it could get weirder and feel weirder. But um, at the end of the day, I try to focus on the positive aspects of it I try to not think about it in the first place, really, <laughs> other than, you know, this is a milestone. I should share this with my followers. Thank you for all the streams. But the other thing is that I don't pay attention almost at all to anything going on in the music industry. I get my music by searching Apple or Spotify for things that I've listened to my whole life. <laughs> you know, I still listen to Blink-182 every day. I don't care. And I get it through friends who I care about, who care about me, who send me links in my personal chats and stuff. I try very hard not to, you know, I'll, I'll get into some new bands and, and new DJs and, and I'll listen to the new songs when they come out and friends send them to me. But I kind of actively try to stay as disconnected as I can, especially to hip hop, because I want, A, not to compare myself to those who are doing well, but, or better than I am, or greater things than I am doing, but also I don't want to sound a single thing like what is on the radio and what is on the charts and the blogs right now. I want to stand out forever. And if that means being underground forever, that's cool. If that means blowing up and starting an entire new genre that people copy me, that's okay. I just want to feel like me and I want to sound like me, you know? Well, that, that is beautifully said and that uh, as you've been very good about doing this interview, that leads directly into my next question, which is the first of the two rapid fire ones I always ask at the end. Uh, number one is, so you just pointed out that you really try to not listen to things going on right now. And I think that's evident when you hear your music, because, you know, I have you both on my get hyped running mix and also on my chill mental health mix. And I, you're one of the few that's yeah. on both of those, you know what I mean? Which is, which is really shows that the sort of span of your, of your work. Who, you already mentioned Blink-182. I always ask my, my guests, who, who influences them? Who should we be checking out? And, and, you know, that you can limit that to music if you want, or you can also talk about who you're reading and, and all that. Right on. Well, dude, I mean, Blink-182 is a constant. I was born in 1988. I've been listening to him my whole life. I don't care who says what about Blink-182. That's my shit. Um, and it's funny because the only thing that I had left with me during quarantine was this old bass guitar. Um, I also work here in Nelson at a creative agency. I'm a um, digital branding and marketing specialist and, and project manager. But um, my creative director left me this shitty bass. He's like, I don't need it. You know, you're going to be sad. Like, 
play carousel. <laughs> and so um, I, I did start playing carousel. And then I was like, dude, I'm going to write an EP with this bass. And I started recording riffs and, and, and little ditties and whatnot and structurized some songs. And I sent them to Samuel Steesmore, also one of our OG homies from the Space Oh, Kids I remember. <laughs> uh, he souped them up into tracks. I wrote lyrics. I sent them to uh, my buddy Jerry Plumpy in L.A. Uh, with Matt Decent. And he plumped them up. And we're going to release a two-song record on June 5th called Lost and Found. Uh, first song's called Lost. Second, call, second song's called Found. Nice. And um, it's the story about life and loss and love and loss and the things in, in inside of us that kind of rip us apart. It's the good and the bad. It's the yin and the yang. And it's the, um, the good times and the bad times, bro, that both of which should not be forgotten. There's some cool movie samples, as always, in Hoodie Time songs. Lost features some of the Lost boys from uh, the movie Hook with nice. uh, Dante Basco plays uh, Rufio. So we got some of Dante Basco and some Robin Williams in there. Um, shout out, Dante. If you listen to this, I'll send it to you, bro. Um, and yeah, so, so that was like the first time in a while that my Blink influence had been completely physically evident i was like i'm into it i'm gonna write these songs and and they ended up to be a sweet fusion of kind of that classic pop punk sound with super heavy hitting 808s and trap flair to it and it's a totally new hoodie sound but it is totally hoodie so right now i'm still on the blink and if we got to talk about some other real quick just mentions of who's hot um, I love this producer from France called Pandrez, P-A-N-D-R-E-Z-Z. -Z. Everything he makes is gold. He makes super awesome jazz-influenced hip-hop beats. Most of them are complete instrumentals, maybe with a little bit of vocal sample. Every song marries the rock, jazz, hip-hop, and electronic house genres very well. I just gave him a follow. I will check him out as soon as we're, we're over here. So yeah, um, last one that I always ask is, you know, what are your mental health uh, or, or your, your, your self-care habits, not only during COVID and, and for you, especially not only when you're touring, uh, although I'm sure you have some that you really focus on because touring can be very hectic. Yeah, they work for me, but they are difficult to always employ. Let me say that. These are, these are difficult and they are daily work. You gotta, you gotta set an iPhone reminder every five minutes. My number one is honesty and openness with what's going on inside me, especially with Liat. We live together. It's been seven weeks now of lockdown, so we're all each other's got. And of course, before COVID and everything, it's not, not just new with COVID, but we both always remind each other how important it is to let let the other in. Even if it's just a notice, hey, this is going on in my head. I don't want to take it any further with conversation, but I want you to know. Even if it's just a notice, it's good to get a notice out. Like we were talking about earlier, the human, the human connection thing, man. I think that I am much more likely to be okay with myself if I let others know who I am. I think that I am much more capable of getting over myself or what's inside my head if I let people know it's going on. And I think that my biggest downfall or flaw is when I don't let people know what's going on. That leads to 
conflict. And that's, that's always my fault. So that's number one, I think for sure. And um, the other is reminding myself that it is okay to not play a show or to not make a song or to not show up to the office or to work from home or to take a vacation day when, when you don't leave the house for my mental health. I think that we are growing up in an era where we've seen both sides of the coin. We've seen the hiding of mental health, both by those going through it and, both, and, and by, by you know, parents and, and doctors and the, the media. It, it, it was silence. No one talked about it. And now I think we're seeing the, the end of that era where artists and musicians and influencers not only are sharing their stories going through it, but are normalizing that stigma that so we've seen kind of both both sides of it yeah the human connection thing and just reminding myself that it's okay to be me it's okay to feel what i'm feeling and it's okay to take a breather and a day off if i need one oftentimes you know you hear stories about people who go to work and they only have x amount of vacation days or um they can't swap because the manager needs you know extra hands on a saturday you know the the american 40 hour week story and people are afraid to to use that eight hours of vacation time or to use that eight hours of sick time or to say, hey, this job itself is toxic. I can find another one and leave. I think that is my number two thing is, is telling myself, don't feel bad because you took a breather. Tell us where we can find you and where we can follow you and we'll wrap it up there. Right on. Just Google hoodie time. H-O-O-D-Y-T-I-M-E. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, man, I just, I don't even know where to begin. Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. All right, we've reached the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joey Talmadge, a.k.a. Hoodie Time. We were in those rooms together. We were going through the same thing. Not the same thing. Our stories were similar. And neither one of us was talking to the other one during it. We were partying. We had a great time, as you could hear in that interview. But neither one of us was talking about how much we were suffering. None of us were. If you take anything away from this, from hearing Joey and I reminisce together and talk about our experience, talk to your friends. Talk to the people you love. Ask them how they're doing. And tell them about what you're going through. We don't do enough of that. I want you to go listen to a podcast if you have a moment. One of my closest friends in the world, I've, I've shouted out this podcast before, Cookies for Breakfast by Spark Tabor. 
he puts a lot of this in words that I think are very helpful for a lot of people. You can find it wherever you find your podcast. It was this week's episode, this week, June 1st. He and I talked a lot about the intro to this episode that you heard. I I, I recorded it in anger and in pain and sadness. I thought a lot of it needed to be said, but I wasn't sure that I was the right person to say it. There's one thing that I didn't do a good job of. One cardinal sin that I made on that intro, and I have to correct it here. I failed to say their names. That is a cardinal sin, and I screwed that one up, and I apologize. We see these headlines. They're horrible, and obviously the incidents are terrible. These people weren't born and given the name unarmed black person. They have names. They are people. And I fucked that up. I did not say their name. So here they are. The case in Tallahassee was Tony McDade. Obviously, we all know the cases of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. In Louisville, it was David McCatty. McCatty. I hope I said it right. If I didn't, I apologize. But do your research. It's, it's, it's that easy. Search Google. And you can actually go to Wikipedia. There are so many that you can go to Wikipedia. And there are pages dedicated to the, are the cases of police uh, murder in America. There are so many that Wikipedia has pages for them all. I didn't believe that when someone told me, so I, I looked. And they're there. They're broken down by month, going all the way back to 2009, and before that, they're broken down by year. This is an epidemic in this country. This is an epidemic in the world. We have to say their names. I do want to apologize to Joey Talmadge. (laughs) Our interview was a really good time. I think you hear that in the way we talk. We are old friends. He's a guy that I think is doing just awesome work. Please go listen to his music. But I definitely co-opted this episode a little bit to talk about these issues. It's not a normal episode for those who know this podcast. And by extension, it's not going to be a normal ending. There's no choose your card. There's no good egg. Because your good egg is just do something. My wife and I are going to a protest this weekend. I've also donated around $10,000. I Look, for those who don't know me and are listening, I was born into privilege. I say that clearly in the first part. I have the money. It is more important to do good things with it. So I've donated to about $10,000 worth of, of black causes. I've used my voice when I thought it was important to do so. And when I haven't had the right words, I've amplified others. Please listen to other people, show love, show empathy, I love you all, choose your struggle, and Black Lives Matter. And now we rolling through Paris, blowing Eiffel Towers with a sweet and a sour, that's flowers, say Beulah, that's Paris, and now we rolling through Paris, at the Moulin Rouge with a girl Big Terrace, hey. And now we rollin' through Paris. 
the sour, that's flowers. Say Beulah, that's Ferris. And now we rollin' through Paris. At the Moulin Rouge with a girl from Bruges. Bonsoir, Big Terrace.